We are in a brand new study. We don't know how long we'll be here. We were in John for almost 90 sermons, the Gospel of John. And now we're in the Gospel according to Luke. You're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You may be familiar with the phrase, the synoptic Gospels. Literally, the word synoptic means together sight. So what synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke means is they're very similar. They're similar in a variety of ways. They're similar in many of their stories. They're similar in their their structure. They're similar in their wording. But there's also some differences, and we'll look at that. That's why we need to be thankful for all of the writers to get a full-orbed view of of the gospel and, and stories that we would have missed if, if Luke had not written. So we'll, we'll look at that today. And John is, is writing a little differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you put them all together, you have that full-orbed picture of, of the gospel. We have a special title today because this is a special momentous day, if you will. And this is the, the, the gospel account of, of Luke where we have titled, God Speaks After 400 Years of Silence. And there's a lot of meaning in that, that God is, is speaking to us today. We pray that God will speak to us through the sermon. But God is now speaking after 400 years. It's that period between the Old and the New Testament. We call it the intertestamental period between Old and New, where theoretically God was silent. He was silent as far as Scripture revelation went. We'll see it in a moment, the book of Malachi. But God was not silent in doing his work, God was preparing the world for the fullness of time when Jesus would finally come. The fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, prophecies, and the patterns and the shadows and the types, <clears throat> all of that coming together. So that's, that's the primary message. We're going to lay, whenever you start a new study, you want to lay a framework and a foundation and then we'll launch out week after week and, and really dive deep into the scriptures. But today we're going to lay a basic framework as well and look at the passage, the first portion in, in, in Luke in chapter 1. But we're laying the framework for this, um, this great gospel that we have, that God speaks after 400 years of silence. Luke 1, 1 to 20, we're only going to read the first seven and then we'll come back and catch the last portion at the halfway point of the sermon. Luke 1, 1 to 20, but we'll read the first seven verses right now. Hear now the word of God. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray together. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. 
Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Father, for those who are not in a saving relationship, make it a word of salvation. For those in the midst of storm winds, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, make it a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. Father, we ask that you would meet us in our deepest place of need. Every single person walked in here, everyone in a place of need. So meet us. But meet us not as we prescribe the needs, but rather as you do, because you know exactly what it is that we need. So come. Descend upon this place. Change us from the inside out. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds that will realign our wills and recalibrate our hearts to beat for nothing smaller than Jesus. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. God speaks after 400 years of silence, two headings. Number one, why? Why does God speak? And number two, what God speaks. And of course, we'll look at that for however many weeks we're in the entire gospel. But today we'll look at the framework. Why does God speak? And what does he speak? Before we do that, let's just look at a few of the distinctives that we would not have if we did not have the gospel according to Luke. Here's just a few. Just to kind of whet your appetite and get you excited about what's coming. He's the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament. That's the first point. It provides much more space to the birth and infancy, and we'll see that as we go along in the first couple weeks. He's the only gospel writer with a sequel. He writes the book of Acts. Now, when you add the book of Acts to the book of Luke, you have the author who has authored more of the New Testament than any other writer, including Paul. Nearly 27% of the New Testament penned by Luke. So it's powerful. It's powerful to see what Luke has given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Today we'll look a little bit at the histories of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel's announcement to the Virgin Mary. Don't believe when some of those modern evangelicals tell you the virgin birth is unnecessary. Don't believe them. It's silly. It's foolish. You don't have a virgin birth. You don't have a savior. It's just that simple. We'll talk about that. Salvation of Zacchaeus. Think of this. Without the gospel of Luke, you have the salvation of Zacchaeus. But what about the good thief on the cross? How important does that become in our our sharing of the gospel? How important does that become in, in our own lives and in our own hearts when we've been praying, let's say, for family members, some for decades, And we see no visible fruit, and yet we have that story of the good thief to all who knew him was on the way to hell. He lived as a criminal. He died as a criminal. But Jesus on the cross said today, you will be with me in paradise. What a powerful, powerful story we have from Luke. Miracles, just a few uh, that are unique to Luke. The first miraculous catch of fish will come here. We'll look at that. Centurion's servant who's healed, the widow's son raised from the dead, the crippled woman who's healed, the ten lepers who are healed, and the restoration of a man's ear, unique to Luke. Some of the parables unique, the good Samaritan, the rich man and Lazarus, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost two sons, if you will, the prodigal, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then one of my favorite portions in all of Scripture 
the walk to Emmaus. Imagine what it would be like without that portion that Luke exclusively gives to us. And then finally, the ascension. And then he picks the theme of the ascension up and he runs that all the way through Acts by showing us the, the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He traces them post-ascension, the first century church. So those are some of the distinctive features that we're going to have the great pleasure to look at in, in the weeks to come. And, uh, and as God speaks to us through the preaching of his word. So let's take a look at just a little bit more in, in background in the first couple verses before we head out into our first heading. Luke wears a few hats, and I want you to see them. Number one, Luke, the conduit. It's important to understand what that means. A conduit just simply transfers the information. Uh, this isn't anything that Luke had in his imagination. This is the revelation of God that comes through Luke. Luke 1, 1 and 2 Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Why is that important? There's, there's the whole picture of the gospel. It's the fulfillment of what was written in the old. None of this is new. All of it is rooted from the very beginning of Scripture. So having been fulfilled among us, what does that say? That this didn't happen in some remote area. There, there, are, there are many people, eyewitnesses, many people involved, many historical figures who played a role in all of this. So all of this that was fulfilled among us. And then he goes on and he says, just as they were handed down. We're going to see this. This is important for us to grab a hold of. Handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Let's look at the word eyewitness first. Just stay there for a second. The word eyewitness, it's uh, the Greek word autoptes is the Greek word for eyewitness. And it's important that we see this. Luke is a doctor and he's writing... As a, as a historian, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment, but this Greek word, atoptes, is, is where we get our English word autopsy. Now listen to this. You know what an autopsy is, right? An autopsy is a very detailed and, and scientific uh, investigation and study into the cause of death uh, in, in, in someone who has, who has passed. Well, he uses this word as, as this eyewitness account, this, this word that we have fully in investigated these eyewitnesses. We have done our due diligence in, in, in gathering this information for you. These are not legends that were passed down. It's powerful when we connect some of these, these words that really have great meaning to us. So he says that it's, uh, we, we've, we, I've done my work. I've done what was necessary to give you an accurate rendering of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the good news of great joy for all people. But go back to the word handed down. Look at the Greek word. Paradidomi is the Greek word for handed down. And the reason I pause there and stop on that word is two reasons. It's repeated again by the great apostle Paul. And Paul and Luke were very, very, very dear friends. So now I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This really helps firmly establish the reliability and the credibility of what Luke has written. This is really powerful, okay? I know we've preached a little bit on this before, but I just want to touch on it right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it's the same verb that Paul uses, that Luke uses. The paradidomi is the same verb, and Paul says this. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, so what did Paul receive? He received this message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, why is that important? And why am I connecting those two? Luke looks like he spent the last two years of Paul's life almost exclusively alone with Paul in Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Luke and Paul were, were, were dear friends, and, and Paul tells us that. Um, was, was Luke converted uh, under Paul? There, there's some information we don't know. But we know that they were very close, that they, they researched together, they studied together, they, they investigated together. And when we see this... This should really strengthen our understanding of, of the gospel according to Luke, and, and here's why. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to show you something. I want to show it to you by walking through it. <clears throat> Paul says these words. In A.D. 30, Jesus is crucified, he's dead and buried, and he's raised from the dead. The skeptic today will tell you what, these are great stories, but there are legends that have developed over time. Over, over the years, the legend grew, and, and we learned more and more about this mystical figure called Jesus Christ. Well, Paul, here at A.D. 30, is Saul. He's persecuting the church, okay? Jesus is crucified, dead, and buried, and now he's raised. This is 30. A couple years later, A.D. 32, perhaps, Paul is converted. So Saul turns into Paul, the apostle. Okay, you with me? That's two years. I'm going to show you a time frame for a reason. He leaves and he goes off, but he comes back to Jerusalem three years later. Okay? He comes back to Jerusalem and he speaks to the leaders of the church. In AD 55, he writes 1 Corinthians 15. That's 25 years from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Only 25 years. Okay, so stay with me. Jesus is buried. He's raised from the dead in 30. Paul is saved in 32. And in 37, he comes back to Jerusalem and he says, what I received, I gave to you. When did Paul receive it? Perhaps he received it when he was converted at 32. He certainly received it at least at 37, 36 when he comes to Jerusalem. And if Paul received the information and didn't make it up himself, the information already existed before Paul. So let's assume here that 30, this is Jesus who's been raised from the dead. Paul is converted at 32. He receives the gospel. What's the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul receives it perhaps in AD 32. What does that mean? It happens somewhere between 32 and 30. The message that the first century church preached was that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and raised from the dead the moment that Jesus walked out of the grave. There was no legend. There was no time for stories to develop. Paul says, it was handed down to me, and I now hand it down to you. Luke says, through my eyewitness accounts, this is what's been handed down to me. This should strengthen your faith and understanding the truths of the gospel. For example, 25 years, is that a long time? Alexander the Great, what do we know about Alexander the Great? Okay, the great writer Plutarch wrote about Alexander the Great 400 years after Alexander lived. 400 years. That's a long time. We have 25 years between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and Paul penning 1 Corinthians in A.D. 55. It's not a lot of time. So when you hear unbelieving skeptics say that these are stories, these are legends that developed over time, Paul says, no, no. This is what was given to me right at my conversion. Christ was 
crucified, dead and buried according to the scriptures, and he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Luke is doing the same thing, okay? See it? It's powerful. It strengthens our faith. Luke is a historian. <clears throat> Why is this important? I want, I want you to consider something. <clears throat> Luke 1.3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know anything about Theophilus, so I'm not going to spend any time trying to speculate. Some kind of distinguished figure that Luke writes to here and in Acts. So he's writing to him. That's, that's as far as we need to go. But what is this? Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I thought Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> he did. But here's the challenge for us. We have a picture of people who write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, laying in hammocks, swinging back and forth, waiting for God to stick the information into their head so that it'll come and flow out of their pens and they can write. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit guided Luke in his careful investigation. Luke, by the normal means of gathering information, research, eyewitness account, investigating, through all that you would normally do, To gain information, knowledge, and wisdom, Luke does that. And yet he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That should strengthen your understanding of the reliability of the scriptures that you read. God used these men to write based on their personalities and their life experiences and their ability to investigate. And Luke is a historian. So he is very careful about his investigation. He wants to get the information accurate. He wants to make sure that it's true. So he goes to all of the resources that he has at his disposal, Paul surely being one of them because Paul and Luke are good friends. So the historian, guided by the Holy Spirit, gives us the inspiration of the Gospel of Luke. And finally, we looked at the word atoptes, For the English that we get autopsy, why is that significant? We'll see more terms later in the gospel. Luke is a doctor. This is instructing us. Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. Later in 2 Timothy, the last thing that Paul pens in the New Testament, he says, only Luke is with me. How close are Luke and Paul? As close as you could get. Luke is not a subordinate to Paul in any way, shape, or form. They're they're colleagues. They're colleagues in in the gospel. Paul had his mission. Luke had his. And they they worked and they served and, and they have given us much of the New Testament account. And we are indebted to God having inspired Luke giving us this this great account. Okay? That gives us some backdrop. gives us an understanding. We see this Great technical term for passing on. Remember, this was a culture unlike ours. They passed on oral traditions. They, 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 they exchanged information orally. Much of what you were taught, you would memorize. It would stay. In, we, don't, we don't operate under that same context in this culture. It's a totally different context. So when Paul says, what I gave to you, I received. And we look at the timeline and we realize how early he receives it. The power in that is for you to know that they were preaching the same message from the day the tomb was empty all the way through today, 2017. The message has never changed. It has never morphed. 
It was never a legend. It was never a story. It was the truth that a dead man got up and walked. And that's what this gospel account tells us. And it should strengthen us in our faith as we walk by faith. And a little bit by sight. Why God speaks, number one. Ready? Luke 1, 5. Notice what the historian... We're going to see this throughout the gospel account. Notice what the historian does again. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. What is Luke doing? He gives us a historical context. You'll have many skeptics who say, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe Jesus, I don't believe even a man even existed. You believe Herod, king of Judea, existed? Right? You believe he did, right? You have all sorts of historical context for him. Well, he's in the biblical account. We have all of this crossover of all of this history. Let me tell you how you look at history. How, how do we glean history? Historians have a very simple process. There are rules and there are tools. And let me make this perfectly clear. There are no special rules and tools for religious history. It's the same as it is for secular history. History is history. You know that George Washington was the first president of the United States based on the same rules and the same tools that were used to establish Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave. That's the truth. So this historian is writing historically for us. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. Context, those two names coming under the heading of why God speaks, take a look. Zacharias means God remembers. Yahweh remembers. Elizabeth means his oath. Why does God speak? He remembers the promise. He remembers the oath. How does that make you feel today? God remembers every promise that he has ever made. And every promise he has made, he will fulfill. That's the promise of understanding why he finally speaks after 400 years of silence. In the fullness of time, Christ now has come. The promise that was made not in the Garden of Eden, the promise that was made in the eternal council of the triune God. Jesus was promised before there was ever a creation. And none of it was dependent upon man. Because I want you to see the oath. We're going to go into the Psalms. I want you to see the oath that, that, that God makes in spite of... Of the rebellion of his people. You would think that God makes a promise when his people finally get it right. They finally start obeying. They finally start living out the purpose and the plan God has for them. No, it's just the opposite. Take a look. Take a look. When did God take his oath? When, when Israel was finally obedient? When they finally got all their ducks in a row and God says, okay, now I'm going to make a promise. And here's what, no. What keeps you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're in Christ, God has raised you from death to life. What keeps you in that relationship? Your faithfulness to him? Phew, you better hope not. I know some that believe that. My faithfulness to him, well, I don't believe that. I'm not that faithful. It's his faithfulness to you that keeps you in your relationship with him. What started in grace is sustained in grace and is ultimately completed in grace. It's all of God's grace. That's it. Psalm 89, 34 to 37. 
in light of Israel's continued idolatry. Remember how we read? Remember how we read last week when we were looking at the, the bridegroom and the bride, the language? What's the, greatest, what, what's, what's the greatest category that God puts over Israel for their idolatry? Adultery. They're, 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 they're sleeping with everyone other, other, than, other than their God. They're giving their hearts to everyone and everything. Spiritual adultery over and over and over again. And God still says, I've made an oath and I've made a promise. And nothing will keep me. Listen to these words. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Doesn't that bring you comfort? My goodness, read the word of God. Read the promises that God has given to his people. He says, I, I, I will not violate. Rick, you, you think to yourself, you've had a real bad day. Maybe you've had a bad week, maybe a whole bad month, and you start reading the scriptures and going, oh, God's going to curse me today. He's going to judge. None of this is going to. No, that's not the way it works. It's his faithfulness and his commitment to you. And that's what begins to change your heart. That's what begins to to transform us from the inside out when we realize he loves us in spite of who we are, in spite of how we treat him. He loves us. He pours himself out. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered once for all. I have sworn by my holiness. Think of that. And I will not lie to David. And if he won't lie to David, he won't lie to you. That his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. 400 years of silence, God speaks. Why? He made a promise. Nothing. Keep him from fulfilling his promise. Ever made a promise? Ever made a promise you didn't keep? See, here's the challenge. Want to know the challenge? The challenge is we have a tendency to bring God down to our level. Right? We've all broken promises. We've all had promises broken to us. So we have a tendency at times to think, well, maybe God's a little bit like us. He's not. He's nothing like us. Okay? Yes, we bear the image of God, and it's marred, and it's stained, and all of those things, and, 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 and we, we try to reflect the character of Christ. But if, when we bring God, listen, God is God, and we praise him for that. And when God says something, he means what he says. He says, I do not change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's, that's what our foundation is built upon, an unchanging God in a constantly changing world. That's the beauty of understanding the gospel. Okay? When God made his promise to Abraham, ready? Hebrews 6, 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater promise No one greater for him to swear by. He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature, listen to that, the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. He wanted to add clarity to his unchanging. It wasn't enough to just say, I, I, I promise you. No. To the heirs. Who are the heirs? You. To the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Isn't that bizarre? God doesn't need to confirm anything with an oath. He's God. 
But God confirms it with an oath to strengthen you in your faith. He confirms it with an oath and doesn't need to do that. But he's saying, I I just want you to get this. Because you're going to have some really bad days. You're going to have some dark days. There are going to be some storms that are going to blow into your life. And you're going to start to doubt. And you're going to have all of these voices that are going to come in and cause you to try to doubt your God. Don't doubt me. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. And I will fulfill what I have promised to you. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope, keep, keep an eye on the word hope, we're going to go back to that, set before us, may be greatly encouraged. What should encourage you today? Certainly not looking at the, the events in the world around you, right? Certainly not looking at the government. Okay, certainly not looking at... Uh, you know, maybe some stuff that's going on in your life. What should encourage you? The author and the perfecter of your faith. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's, that's our north star. That's where we, sh- that's where we put our focus. That's, that's where we place our hope. That's where we keep our, our trust. And we depend upon him. Why? Because he will never let us down. We have all been let down by others. And we have all let others down. We continue to do that. Because we are sinful and we are broken. But there's no shadow in him. There's no turning in God. And that's the encouragement for the Christian. Okay? Why does God speak? He had no choice. He made a promise. And in the fullness of time, 400 years after his final revelation in the Old Testament, he spoke. Now, what did God speak? Ready? Let's take a look. Back to our passage, Luke 1, 11 to 17. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. We're back in the temple with Zacharias, the, the priest. The angel of the Lord appears to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. God promised to hear his prayer. His prayer has been heard. But it wasn't in his time frame. You're going to see that when we get to the end. That's one of the challenges for us. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John, John the Baptist. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord. There's the message. He will go before the Lord. This is the promised forerunner coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And once again, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, so God speaks. Why does God speak? Because he fulfills his promises Every promise that he makes. And remember, he doesn't make the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He doesn't make it there. He makes it in the eternal council before there was any creation. Okay, so the promise is fixed. The promise is fixed in, in the character and the nature of God. It has nothing to do with us. Then creation takes place, and then the fall, and then God makes the promise so that we hear it. He doesn't even speak to the people. He's speaking to the serpent. 
And he tells the serpent what's going to happen in Adam and Eve here. And and Moses gives us the account of it in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman. What is that? Women have no seed. The man has the seed. What's the seed of the woman? There. We don't need a virgin birth. Wait till we get to that. It's absolutely critical that we have that. Why? Everyone born of, of Adam and Eve are what? Born in trespass and sin. So the virgin birth is absolutely critical. The seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus is the seed. He's the promised seed. He is the Messiah, the one who is to come. So this is the Lord. What does God speak? He speaks now the coming of the Lord. That now is the day of salvation. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years you looked forward to the day of salvation. The promised fulfillment of my covenant. Now is that time. In the fullness of of time Christ has come the perfect time and people ask well why did he come then and not now because that was God's perfect time to send the Lord Jesus Christ that was it so those 400 years of silence from revelation God is preparing everything God is preparing the nations God is preparing the cultural context God is even paving some roads during the Pax Romana the peace of Rome So that the gospel could spread quickly to all nations. And in those 400 years, God is just setting it all up for the time that he had ordained before the foundation of the world. That as John writes, the word would become flesh and dwell among us. That's the promise that's fulfilled. What is our hope? 1 Timothy 1.1, here's Paul again writing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. What is your hope in? What, where do we place our hope today? The, the only hope that we can count on is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this entire gospel is all about. This promised hope that we have now in Christ. All of the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And all of us after looking back at the Messiah who has come. And now transferring our trust from ourselves to our Savior. That's the gospel. That's the promise that we have been given in this great hope. The hope of salvation. But it's not just the hope of salvation in eternal life. It's the hope of salvation in everyday life. I'll never forget this line from Dr. Kennedy. God saved you then as he's saving you now. What does that mean? I had no idea what that meant. I thought we were saved once. I didn't understand how sinful I was until he explained it. God saves you once and justifies you by grace through faith. But make no mistake, he's in the business of saving you moment by moment from yourself. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Being conformed to the image and likeness of God's beloved son. God is restoring to us what we once had. The perfect image and likeness of God that was lost in the fall. So that's the promise. That's the hope. So why is, that, why is that good news for you? Well, it's only really good news for you if you know how bad you are. And what that means is you're not going to always be as bad as you are. 
God, God is at work with you. You're not always going to be like you are. Isn't that good news? It is if you know who you are. I know some of you, and it's good news for me to know that you're not going to always be like you are. I'm very happy to know that. And some of you know me, and you're saying, yeah, and I'm really glad you're not going to be like you've always been. And the sooner you change, the better for all of us. It's true. God is at work. He's changing us. He's conforming us to Jesus. It's the only reason we're, it's the, it's the whole point of understanding why we're here. We're here to expand the cause of the kingdom of Christ, but what is God's primary work in us? It's not to build our trust account. It's not, not to get a, a, a second home. It's not to, 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 to have nice clothes. And it's, not, it's, it's to conform us to Jesus, to give us what we lost in the fall, to get us back to that place where we are now conformed to God. That relationship now is being perfected. Okay? See that? Here's the prophecy. Here's the end. Here's the end of the Old Testament. Let's look at Malachi, and then we close. 3.1, I will send my messenger. What is that? Well, this is what Luke is telling us. The messenger has come. John. John is the messenger. Who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, listen to me. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Well, we're going to see that in a few weeks, right? Where Jesus comes to the temple. Remember, they leave him behind in the temple. Remember that story? That's unique to Luke. They, leave, they, they, go, they go for the Passover event, right? And then, and then mom and dad and, and the whole group, they leave. The whole caravan leaves, and they realize a day out, they, 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 where is Jesus? Where, where did he go? We lost him. And you wonder, man, are these are bad parents or what? No, it's just a big group of people. And so they go back to try to find him. Three days later, they find Jesus. Where is he? He's in the temple. And what does he say? Why were you searching for me? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? And this is going to be so great as we walk through this gospel account. And remember, three things, which is my responsibility. Tell them what the word says, tell them what the word means, and tell them what the word requires. What does it require of us when we come to the text of Scripture? What does God want us to do with it? And we'll see that at the very end. And then finally, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, these, these are the final two verses. This is it. And then God goes silent. God goes silent. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. Well, Elijah was whisked into heaven. It's not the reincarnation of Elijah coming back down. But in the spirit of Elijah, what does that mean? That John is likened, he's likened to Elijah in his character, in his passion, in his power in his, his commitment to delivering the word of God. And, and what, is, what does it cost John? What is the call that God places in John's life cost him? Cost him his head. Cost him his head. Took his head off for preaching the gospel. That's how passionate, that's how committed John was to doing what God, and he had his doubts he had, his, he had his questions. Well, you see that. But ultimately, he says, when Jesus stands before him, I am unworthy to untie the laces of his sandals. And in John chapter 3, what does he say? Probably one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture for all of us. He must increase, and I must decrease. There's the key. And that's how we're going to close this. Ready? John is come. John is going to make a way. Why God speaks, he has to speak. It's fulfill his promise. What does he speak? 
the Lord Jesus Christ has come. The promised Messiah is here. John is the forerunner. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. That's John. Remember some of the attacks that he, he, he leveled on, on the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, 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 and the local Roman leaders? You brood of vipers. Repent of your sins. I mean, this guy, the spirit and power of Elijah. You know, it, it would serve us well to have more of the spirit and the power of Elijah today in the church. If that were more alive and well. That we were that committed, regardless of the cost and the circumstance, of, of preaching the whole counsel of God. That's what that means. That's, this is John. So how do we close this? I want you to see something. Because this will help us as we move forward. That God will speak to us now. However many weeks it takes to work through this gospel account, we want God to speak. You didn't come to hear the imagination of a man. You came for the revelation of God. I have one goal, that when you leave the sanctuary every single week, when you walk out of this place or by way of the Internet that you're watching this, you say, as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? That's all we're here for. I have nothing else to give to you but the word of God. But I want you to see this. I want you to see that now... We have the word of God, but there's a role that we have to play, right? In as much as it's all of grace, we have to appropriate the grace. The same grace that saves is the same grace that sustains, and it's the same grace that, that ultimately carries us into eternal life, but there's a way that we appropriate the grace. So let me show you how. Ready? Don't miss this. Luke 1, 18 to 20. Here's the last, two verse, last three verses of the passage. Zechariah asked the angel. The angel gives him the, the, the message. Your prayers have been answered. Listen to me. Imagine yourself, now put yourself in, in his shoes. Prayers have been answered. The promise has been fulfilled. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure? <laughs> he questions God. How can I be sure of this? I heard what you just said, but how can I be sure? I, I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. There's an echo. Don't you hear Abraham and Sarah? But what's the difference between Abraham and Sarah and, and, and Zechariah? Zechariah is operating in unbelief, and you're going to see in a moment because he's going, to get, he's going to get judged. Okay? God says, okay, okay. You're questioning me? What, 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 were, what were Zachariah and Elizabeth praying for? They were praying for a son. How do we know? They got a son. That's the answer to the prayer. They got it. They got the promise fulfilled. So here's, what's, here's what happens. Ready? The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. That's all you need to know. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. How do we begin to appropriate the grace that God gives to us as God speaks into our lives? How do we do that? We have to remove the eye. Notice the last screen. The same eye that's in the dead center of sin is the same eye that's in the dead center of pride. That's where this whole thing got messed up. Sin and pride, the pride of Adam and Eve not being satisfied. Go back into, into the heavenly realm, the pride of the angels who were not satisfied being angelic beings but wanted to be God. Adam and Eve in the garden not satisfied being made in the image of God. They wanted to be God. Our challenge in coming to God's word is that the eye gets in the way and Zacharias says it. How do I know this is true? I'm an old man. He's not believing even in the prayers that he lifted as God speaks to him and says, it's time now. Your son is going to come. Isn't that just like us? We pray and we pray and we pray and all of a sudden it begins to happen and we go, I can't believe this. How is this even happening? It's unbelief. 
We have to remove the I. And we have to fix our focus on the author and perfecter of our faith. There's, there's the key in beginning to appropriate the grace. I has to get out of the way. As John said, I must decrease. And he must increase. And as he increases, then we will begin to see greater pictures. And we'll sense a greater presence of this promised Messiah in our lives. Do you know that truth? It's real simple. It's the truth of the gospel. And at this point in every sermon, it's called the time of invitation. What does that mean? You're invited to experience, if you never have for the very first time, what a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's transferring your trust from yourself. It's removing the I and focusing in on him. It's saying, I cannot fix myself. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that there's no good in me. I've tried everything and nothing has worked. So now it's transferring your trust to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's accepting the invitation to come. And how do you come? When you're finally cleaned up and you got everything right? God is waiting for you to get all of your ducks in a row? No, those ducks will never get in a row, will they? They'll always be messing up that pond of yours. You come just as you are. Broken. Ashamed and dirty. And sinful. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I, I alone will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the power that is contained within it. Father, we ask as we launch out into a brand new study. For however many weeks you'll have us walk slowly through the gospel according to Luke. Remove the eye. Lord, please get us out of the way. Father, and that's a message that we need to take home in our families, in our marriages, at the office, in our neighborhood, and in our community, and in our church. There's nothing, nothing that messes our lives up more than I. Father, we ask that you would meet each person in their deep place of need today. And we ask that it was you who spoke and not me. And that every single person who heard this word today or will hear it by way of the internet, you will speak. And you will speak truth that will transform them from the inside out. We thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and have promised to continue to do. For he who began a good work will one day bring it to completion. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you all stand as we continue our worship? My sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested in my life. was redeemed, only beauty remains. In my orphan heart, 
who's given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so is over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It is from my chains I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a Thank you. 